podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Well, let's bowl this mother out with another Wagon Wheel. Let's see what we have with questions. Uh, Let's have a look here. Christopher says, do you think we might ever see a T20 league which which effectively will tour? So the same teams could play in South Africa, West Indies, maybe Sri Lanka, for example, across the year, providing one longer tournament. Uh, Obviously, we know the IPL investment in some of these leagues connected to these teams, but I wonder uh, if it would be better if it just became one long league across the year. Uh, Well, it will become one long league across the year, I suppose, one way or another. I kind of see all the other leagues as more development leagues going forward. So I don't see them necessarily touring. I suppose what I saw, what I've always talked about, but I don't think is going to happen anymore, is having a Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan league and then traveling around that. So having two weeks in Sri Lanka and two weeks in Bangladesh and two weeks in Pakistan. I think those things, there's a lot of uh, advantages that certainly can be made from from those kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, overall... Um, I don't think, because T20 leagues are so, um, because they're run by individual boards, you need the same contracts and the same systems across all those different things to be able to do what you're doing. If all the IPL owners own those leagues, that's potential. But I don't think that that's how all those leagues will end up being. They might own a lot of the teams in the leagues, but they may not own all the leagues itself. So, um, I don't see that as something happening, Christopher, but it is it is still possible. There's lots of things on the cards uh, for that sort of thing. AB says, do you think players who are seen as overweight are underrated by franchise T20 teams? I think players who are, over- who are seen as overweight are underrated by every part of every athletic sport, maybe outside of sumo wrestling. Um, uh, he's talking about Paul, St- uh, Paul Sterling, Rakim Cornwall, Samit Patel, Azam Khan, um, in certain instances, it may cost a few runs in the field or between the wickets, but surely they can more than offset that with bat and ball. Well, the problem is that we can't, we don't know if they can offset that with bat and ball. Uh, my guess would be they can in many cases. Um, the problem usually comes from the fact that no matter how good your team is, you have to hide one or two players already in the field. If you had a team, I, I remember the St. Lucia team the year after I left. I, I was like, it was the worst fielding team I had ever seen. You literally could have scored twos everywhere. Um, it's very rare that teams do that. And that's because I think teams still trust the coaches a lot. And coaches are very fielding driven. They want good athletes out there more often than not. Because we don't know what, you know, they can give us more than someone who is 
a slightly worse player, but can do that in the field. My guess is we're probably undervaluing big players. Also, if you look at Rakim Cornwall, so he's the most extreme version of this. So what's what's he's about six seven, six eight, I suppose. Um, I, I don't know what he weighs in in kilograms. I know it's fluctuated quite a bit, but. It's probably, you know, anywhere between 130 and 150 kilo, uh, kilograms at times. And yet, in the middle of all that, he was recruited by the NFL, right? Didn't end up going to the NFL, but I think Barrett's written a piece about that before. Someone someone has. I think it was Barrett. Um, so are we really saying he's not a good athlete? <laughs> he's a phenomenal athlete. In his mid-20s, one of the most professional sporting leagues in the world wanted him to come across, right? So I think we know 100% that he's a great athlete. What he can't do, obviously, is certain things. But if you're looking at, and I base this partly on myself. For those who don't know, I used to weigh about 50, well, I dropped 50 kilograms at one stage. Put a little bit of it back on, but uh, I dropped 50 kilograms. I played cricket when I was at my top weight. I found hitting sixes are really easy as a big guy, right? And I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying everyone is going to find it like that i'm sure some people might find it hard but i found hitting sixes really easy and then when i lost all my weight i stopped hitting sixes um i was a better player in some other ways and and i had to round out my game a little bit i could just stand in the crease and hit um i probably became a better batter by accident from that probably worst t20 player um so and 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 you talk about rakeem Cornwall. you talk you could put lizelle lees there as well right there's absolutely no doubt in some cases we're not only just uh, what's the best West way of putting it? We're not, we're not just undervaluing them. We're actually a misunderstanding of what new cricket athletes need to be. So when you say AB that you think that people are, um, uh, wait, what's the exact word you use? Underrated by franchise teams. Underrated. That I think that's the obvious one, but I think also misunderstanding what new athletes need to be able to do is the other interesting one. And the fact that we're we're saying that Samat Patel isn't worth as much to us, um, but we haven't actually worked out how much his fielding is worse than someone else who is fitter than him. And so we still don't have great fielding metrics. Crickviz have the best system. It's not a great system. It's, a, it's the old baseball system. It's the best we've ever had, and it's not very good. Uh, there are much better modern ways to be able to do that where you would be able to work out the the worth of those players. Um, and uh, as we go towards bigger hitting players who can hit sixes more often, which seems to be the, the way we're going towards T20 cricket, it might take a while, does saving runs in the field and does um, running better between the wicket actually ha help if you're playing against a team who doesn't run at all when they're batting and just hit sixes a lot? And... It's a really, really interesting one. T20 cricket's not quite yet there yet, but it's it's a really interesting one because I don't think we've thought about this correctly at the moment. Kumar says, with the new leagues being formed, how can the league boards that run the manage owners who own multiple teams in different leagues with issues such as conflicts of interest? Ah, oh, they can't. Uh, my understanding of ownership is that uh, it's really hard to get rid of an owner. Um, we... <laughs> 
there was a couple of years ago where I'm pretty sure the CPL wanted to get rid of three of their owners at one time. It was really hard for them to be able to do it. Uh, once you open yourself up to management and uh, sorry, outside management, it comes with everything it comes with. And I don't think you can really um, get around conflicts of interest and, and other things like that. So I don't know what would be a perfect example of it would be, um, let's say when Vijay Malia owned um, uh, teams in the IPL and the CPL, obviously he leaves the, uh, uh, the IPL, um, but, but he, let's say Kingfisher beer goes on to be, I don't know, one of the biggest beers in the world. Right. And he renames his team, the Kingfishers. Can a CPL team stop that? I don't know. But what if they then get an offer from Banks Beer or Foster's or, I don't know, you know, whatever other beer company might want to sponsor the CPL? That's a, that's a problem. And I'm not sure that, as I understand these leagues at the moment, they're really set up to be able to fix that. Um, so it's a really, really interesting issue going forward. Um, but you're not wrong. It's, uh, it's certainly something that... Um, it's certainly something that I think with ownership in general, I think there was a rush in, in cricket specifically um, to get to ownership. And I don't think that everything, every last detail of it was thought out, I suppose is the best way of putting it. And because of that, um, there's a lot of problems within the game. But also at a certain point, it doesn't matter. I mean, we've seen with the NBA and with Premier League teams of recent times, uh, you know, bad owners, uh, it's hard to get rid of them anyway, right? So no, even if you don't talk about conflicts of interest, even if you talk about, you know, Robert Sava being racist in Phoenix, um, if you talk about, you know, Chelsea and their links to Russia and all these different things, uh, or links links to Putin, I should, should say, not Russia, um, they're, they're tough once you bring in. And the thing is, rich people usually have it's very hard to get rich enough to buy a major sporting team and not have done some things i'm not saying there aren't good business owners or entrepreneurs or millionaires or billionaires out there but there aren't many right i mean at a certain point there is a there is a part of it that is exploitative there is a part of it that means you probably have to assign with other people who aren't of highest moral um fiber and sporting teams and sporting leagues are supposed to be above that and it can be very tricky um we saw a really interesting story in australia recently where the head of an australian rules football team the ceo uh, was basically forced out because the in in australian rules football um th they didn't want to be seen as homophobic and uh you know and, and against certain groups and the person who was made ceo came is a high up in a church which is quite homophobic and so you then have this weird thing uh we have those all the way through look at the owners uh the ipl teams the uh, some of the bpl teams when they were there the psl teams the cpl teams there's some interesting owners throughout cricket um and uh it's only going to get more and more interesting as things go ahead Renee says, a women's bat is underperforming in general compared to the massive advantage they have facing much slower bowlers. Most top-level international women have grown up playing against men and regularly play club bowlers who bowl in the 120-125 range. So, clear, uh, so clearly there isn't any psychological barrier for female batters as there is for bowlers. Uh, why haven't we seen the equivalent of Bradman yet in the women's game? Okay, it's a, this is a really interesting question. So there's a few different things here. Um, 
the first thing to note is in order for um, those women to be averaging Bradman-like numbers in international cricket, you'd expect them to be doing that in club cricket, right, against those men that you spoke of. And they're not, right? So they're not – I'm not saying there aren't women who do really well in club cricket. I don't think there's any woman out there that's doing so well in club cricket that a men's professional team wants to use her as a specialist batter. Certainly none I've heard of. Right, I, you know, in a lot of leagues, obviously that's not even possible. But, but you get my general point. Um, so I think that's the first thing to start with there, uh, Renee, on on that particular one. Um, we know that there are things to do with fast twitch muscle fibers, which work differently between men and women. Uh, we know that, um, uh, you know, Venus, uh, not Venus Williams, Serena Williams' serve wasn't anywhere near as fast as the men's servers, and yet the women's uh, players aren't smashing her around, even though they've grown up playing against men's servers. So there is a reason why that is still the case. Uh, I'm not going to get into the sports science stuff because I don't really understand all the, all the different parts, especially when it comes to batting. But clearly there is a reason because if it was something that, uh, if, if it wasn't, I think you'd be right. Weirdly enough, there are a lot of men's cricketers who kind of agree with your basic premise here in that they they actually think that the, the problem with the women's game is that when they bowl to women, they actually think the women are really good um, and that the women should never go out um, against women bowlers. But when we see international cricket, that's not what we see. We do see women beaten for pace quite a bit. We do see women struggling with the amount of swing that women bowlers get, especially in swing. Um, uh, we do see the spinners doing quite well, you know, someone like Sophie Eccleston at the moment and, and um, uh, you know, uh, the the leg spinner from um, England, whose name I've forgotten, but they've got incredible numbers, right? Uh, and we see that right across the game, you know, spinners right around the world, a lot of them have incredible numbers in the women's game. So I don't think that, um, I don't think that, that your logic kind of stands up and it doesn't stand up in any other sport that I've ever seen either. Any sport where you have a fast reaction time, um, there seems to be women seem to struggle to handle the fast reaction time at the higher level. Like if you watch mixed doubles in tennis, um, you know, the men serving have an extraordinary advantage in that, in that particular um, thing. And women really do struggle to get those serves back. Doesn't mean they don't get it back, and it doesn't mean when they go back to women's um, tennis suddenly they dominate because everyone's serving, you know, twenty percent slower or whatever those numbers are. Um, but I think there is a worry, weirdly enough, that you and other people are right, and that one day women will clock women's batting. I just think that when that happens, women bowlers will develop with it, and so it won't ever happen. So um, I think watching Meg Lanning at times. I have thoughts, and Matali Raj, they were the two where I looked at them and just went, how on earth is anyone going to get them out? Um, but I also know that as good as those two players are, I'm not sure either of them would average 45 in first-class men's cricket, right? And and so I do think that they are they look that good in part because they are playing the bowlers they are going up against, but there hasn't been an influx of players. You know, the test matches aren't um, 700 plays 700, Right. So I don't think that women's players are batters are underperforming. I think that's the level that they are. Um, and and your thing about you know Bradman, we've only had one Bradman in. in I mean, we, you could argue you've only had one Bradman in sport at a certain point. I don't think we've ever had anyone who is twice as good as the next next greatest player. 
right, or, or 40%, uh, yeah, not, not quite, but 80% better, whatever he is, um, than the next best great. Um, uh, but we've had some, we've certainly had some women who've gone very long periods with very good records, but then they drop off the same way that we see with, with you know, uh, Virat Kohli and, and Steve Smith, maybe even Kane Williamson, through the same reasons, um, you know, injury and everything else. Um, so, you know, Bradman is such a, a separate thing, but it's a really, really interesting question. Thanks for that. Uh, James says, what are your thoughts on Washington Sundar as a player across formats? I don't know if James knows this, but I think outside of his dad, <laughs> I might be Washington Sundar's biggest fan. Um, across formats, uh, T20 player, I think you can use him with the new ball as a spinner, which gives you great flexibility to be able to use your more normal spinners in the middle. Uh, I don't think you can pin him down for four overs every game, but if you if you can factor a lineup in where he's uh, looking at two and a half to three overs every game, I think he's a huge help there. Um, batting, I know he was used up the top of the order. Was it last IPL season or the season before now? Um, I can see why people want to do that. I wonder if his batting still just hasn't developed to the level that it needs to. But I do wonder what use he has further down the line when the field is out. Uh, he's not that powerful. He's a good striker, but he's not powerful, if that makes sense. Um, so he's not going to clear the boundaries regularly, even when he's mishitting the ball. I think he needs to hit the middle of the bat more, which is a different kind of hitter. Um, so he's quite weird there. One day, one day cricket, I'm sure I've seen him play, but I'm not sure I have any thoughts on him as a one-day cricketer, um, James. Sorry, I'd have to... Weird, I just realised that. Um, I'd have to go through the numbers um, and have a look at him. Um, what would he be good in one-day cricket? I would have thought he'd be a good bowler from, what, the 10 over to the 30 over mark? Uh, would make sense for him. Um and then you've got his batting. I would think that he would be quite flexible with his batting in one-day cricket in a way that maybe he's less so in T20 cricket. You could send him out as a person with intent between, again, maybe that 10 to 35 over mark and willing, almost willing to know that he's not a specialist batter but that he can probably take on the spinners in that period and maybe get you a 40 off 30 balls. Um that kind of innings, which in T20 cricket's not that revolutionary, but in one-day cricket, you can extend your batting lineup. But I'd have to have a look at his numbers a lot more there. In Test cricket, a uh, huge fan of him. In Test cricket, uh, his biggest problem is that he's a tall off spinner and that India have the best tall off spinner of all time playing for them. Uh, so he can't really play with R. Ashwin that much. If R. Ashwin wasn't playing, he's very accurate, he's very clever with his bowling. I'm not sure he's ever going to be a high wicket a taker um but he can certainly control the game and he, his batting probably makes the most sense in test cricket where he can just go out there and play um without really worrying about it if you have him batting at number eight it's a very deep batting lineup if you have him batting at number seven i think he has the ability to develop into that kind of player into the future i'm not sure he's quite there yet but we know that he batted you know but players like washington sundar um Odeon Smith, uh, Kyle Jameson, they played as batters when they were juniors, obviously, and up the order when they were juniors. They have some general batting skills, but because their other parts of their game took over, I don't think they've developed as much. And you can see Hardik Pandya went from being a hitter to a batter who can hit, although he doesn't hit as much anymore. But um, he had that late development, um, and there's a lot of all-rounders that have that late development. So he's still, I mean, Washington is so young. 
there's plenty of time for him to develop uh, that kind of batting. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan, as you may, may have heard. Uh, Will, uh, are there any players out there you think uh, who were retired or forced out too early and could have had two or three more years high-level production in them? Shinder and Chandrapal uh, probably would still be a better bat than uh, many players in the West Indies top six if he came back tomorrow. Um, he obviously wasn't going to be the player he had been before. Simon Katic is one that I think you look back at it. took him forever to finally get to that level that everyone thought he was going to be that good at when he was young. And then they dropped him essentially because they had three old batters in Ponting, Hussey and him. I think of the three, I think Simon Katic is probably the one I would have taken. Um, at that time, they kept Ponting because he was Ponting. And obviously, I think Hussey was very close to being dropped um, and found some form. I think that was... 10-11 Ashes, I'm trying to remember back now. Um, there's two batters off the top of my head. Shoot Clark was someone that I thought, um, there was all this talk about how he'd lost his nip. I'm not saying he hadn't lost his nip. I'm just saying he was the most, him and Muhammad Asif were the most skillful bowlers of their generation. I kind of, if you're going to back anyone to still be good, I would have thought it would have been Michael uh, Shoot Clark. And then the way you use him is important. He doesn't have to play every test. Bring him in when you think things favour him. And that wasn't really the thinking around cricket as much at that stage. Um, so, yeah, certainly uh, Stuart Clark is another one. Uh, I suppose Ramprakash is an interesting one. He never made run any runs at the international level and probably didn't play when he was at his peak batting years. Um, and there's a lot of players who who have that sort of curve. Don't they? I mean, you know, you look at someone like Michael DiVenuto came into the Australian team before they had Gilchrist. They wanted him to be that enforcer. I watched a lot of Tasmania playing around that period. I watched him play for Australia and then watched him in his 30s. He was a much better player in his 30s than he was when he was young. Um, you do get a lot of players who sort of play between the age of 21 and 24 and they fail. Uh, and then they come back a couple of times and they're probably at their best between 28 and 32 because those are your peak years. It's kind of the ridiculous nature of international cricket that we're always looking for the next 10-year player and we're not looking for players who are at their absolute peak who can perform. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anyone else that had a similar similar kind of uh, of recent times. I mean, there's heaps in the old old days. Um, uh, Will, there's a great old English bowler, average about 20 or 21, and I don't think he played after he was 28. Um Trying to think of any of the other, there must be a couple of West Indians that might have been phased out. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the older cricketers, that was a thing. Um, you know, there, there was certainly a period when maybe the 80s, 90s, 2000s, when I think we were phasing out cricketers a little bit too much. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm missing someone really obvious now. I feel like there's a spinner um, that I am missing. But yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's certainly, there's certainly quite a few players out there. Uh, selection is, in any sport, selection's really weird. I remember re I read an article about basketball recently where they were saying that, you know, the top 5% of professionals playing basketball in Europe are way better than, the, you know, the 80% of rookies in the NBA. But the reason that NBA teams don't sign them is that when you sign a rookie out of the draft, you basically control them for the next eight years if they're any good. Um, and you don't have to pay them very much for the first three or four years. Whereas if you get a, a, a top-level professional in, in out of Europe, 
you have to pay them a fairly decent amount to get them away from Europe to start with. And you probably, you only have them controlled for whatever contract you give them. And if they're 28, you may not want to get, and they've never played in the NBA before. You may not want to give them a four year contract. Um, and, uh, you know, so every, you know, every sport in the world has to deal with its own idiosyncr- idiosyncratic nature. And I remember talking to someone involved in franchise cricket and he, he was just like, the one thing they were trying to do in franchise cricket is get the teams to pick the best 11 players for each game, not pick the guy, oh, you know, he's a project or whatever. And it's like, well, we can't afford a project, you know, this season because we all need to keep our jobs next year. So let's just win the games. And, and it's that balance of it's very hard to develop players for the top level of any sport without them playing in the top level of sport. So you're almost automatically never picking your best 11. You're you're picking an 11 that you will hope will do you well enough in this game and will ha- help you in the future. Um, and so with that in mind, I think there've been a lot of high level production players uh, who could have played on who just didn't uh, because of that. But just on that, well, Shivnor and Chandra Paul, I'm pretty sure I looked at his numbers and he had at least two really strong years after um, he was moved on by West Indies cricket. Ian says, uh, night watch is a good idea in first class test cricket. Uh, <laughs> um, I just, I've always thought that I get the cricket logic behind it. It doesn't matter if you lose another wicket now, although I do think psychologically it does because the further you, if you further you move your batters down the order, they usually average less just because of where they're coming in. And there is a psychological thing to numbers and all that sort of stuff. And if it's hard to bat for test batters who are paid to do it, I just think that sending out a night watcher is essentially sending out another wicket um, from that. I've never done a huge study on it. Um, my memory is that the averages are quite low in the last 20 minutes before play, whether you send out a night watcher or a top order batter. Um so if that's the case, maybe there's more of a case for it. I don't know how. In fact, I might. It's an interesting question. Ian. I might send a message to someone um, to see if we can work it out between the two of us of how we work out if a night watcher is worth it. Uh, who are some of the best in cricket? I mean, obviously, I think people like Matthew Hoggard, Jason Gillespie, um, players with no back back lifts um, are very hard to dismiss uh, at that. You know. Um, in a short period of time, Paul Harris, those sorts of players, um, because they just don't have any backlift. And so, you know, if you either nick them off or you don't, it's very hard to get them out LBW or bold. Um, that kind of cricketer is very, very good in that uh, particular kind of role. But on a basic point, if you're a good night watcher, really you should be a good batter, if that if that makes sense. Um, but there are certain all-rounders, uh, all there are certain bowlers who are more suited to it just because they're taking not maybe not taking away some dismissals because obviously Hoggard and, and Gillespie still got bold in LBW but they make it very hard to get those dismissals which means that they're limiting amount, the amount of do and you can probably frustrate a team in that little period um, if that is the case but yeah uh those are the sorts of plays that make sense. Statistically, I don't really have any numbers on who's been particularly good at it and who hasn't. Um, I'm trying to work out, again, off the top of my head, if there's a way of looking into it. I, 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 might, I might talk to a friend, see if we can come up with it between us. Satchmo says, do you think the T20 World Cup will become an annual event? 
would that be overkill? I don't think it's going to be annual. Um, I think what they they might try and do is have it every two years, have one in the Olympics and have one in the Commonwealth Games for ma maximum exposure, new fans, uh, ICC making lots of money. I think that now that the ICC are pushing for more and more, I think that's when the boards will push back and be like, no, 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 we don't want to give you too much power, so we'll give one to the Olympics and we'll give one to the Commonwealth Games. I would think that would be the best way of doing it. Um, not the Commonwealth Games is particularly big thing. Or you could have, instead of the Commonwealth Games, have a knockout tournament. Invite the best, what, 32 teams in the world in T20 cricket? I mean, we have so many T20 internationals now, you know. Uganda are on fire. So... Uh, get some of the get those teams in and see what happens. Just have a a, a knockout tournament um, uh, as, as something completely different um, altogether. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't go with a World T Twenty every year. I, I don't think that makes. I don't think that's. I almost think that you want a World Cup every four years, and you want the other tournament to be something like T Twenty Championship. I don't know something else. If, if that makes sense. Uh, Aditya says, what are the factors that go into deciding a player's base price at auction? How much of a role does the player's reputation play? Are franchises consulted while deciding player prices? Okay, so it's usually player slash agent. It's usually agent, actually, more than player. Um, lots of, there's so many agents, they all do it differently. I'm not going to pretend uh, that there is a single way that any of these people do it. But there's certainly, um, uh, it's agent-led. Um, but there are some players who do, uh, you know, say to their agent, I want to go higher. Sometimes you'll have something as simple as, um, you know, I'll say to a player, base price is high. And he said, yeah, uh, what, you know, my wife doesn't really want me to play in this league. So I'm going to go if it's, I'm getting paid over my odds, um, which is fair, right? Uh, and so you do see that. You see people. Uh, you know, with the with the old England players in the IPL, I think a lot of people, ah, oh, England players are so arrogant, but they were factoring in um, that they needed to make that a, a larger amount of money because they were missing a big part of their season at home. Uh, and they get paid quite well compared to other, uh, other um, systems. They didn't want to upset anyone in English cricket unless they were getting paid for it. Uh, but yeah, so it's usually, it's usually, uh, you know, uh, that some, t with agents, they will then contact um, – they will talk to franchises because they're trying to pre-sell their players. A lot of players are pre-sold, especially in some of these smaller leagues. By the time the auction or the draft comes out I, – I accidentally um, put out the entire IPL draft one year – sorry, CPL draft one year uh, because all the decisions had already been made and I think it had already been filmed in the morning or something as well. But we – I've been on the desk of – you know, of uh, at auctions and, and, and drafts where I'm like, okay, up next, we should go for this player. No, no, we've already signed this player. <laughs> well, the, the thing hasn't started yet, right? So you do get those sorts of things as well. Um, uh, but yeah, it's not as much of a science as it should be. And I would say across the board, other than very, the, the two sort of more specific cases I talked about before, I would say that most players probably put themselves too high um, and it doesn't work. Uh, that way, I think you should um, certainly in, in this particular case, I think you should always put yourself lower if you want to play more cricket. Um, and then when you become popular, you know, there'll be a um, a system that happens uh, there that'll get you up the list or, you know, if it's a, if it's an auction or if it's a draft, whatever that may be. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, we're still new to it. 
I suppose is the best way of putting it. And there's uh, the other thing I would say, and to be fair to the agents, is there are so many leagues that have so many different systems. It's actually hard for the agents all, always automatically to keep that in their head. And I remember working with the team where we turned up to a tournament and we thought the uh, sorry to a draft and we thought the conditions were going to be one thing and they were completely different. And that's because it hadn't been shared until um, about an hour before the tournament and our entire plan had to be ripped up. So it's not always ideal. Uh, Callum says, what have the pitches been like in Australia for T20s recently? The use of drop-in wickets seems to be more prominent. I mean, drop-in pitches have been used for a long time in Australia. Uh, Callum, I, you know, now. Uh, can we expect the quick pitches and big scores that people have been discussing? I don't think Australia is a particularly high-scoring uh, T20 venue. I Memory... Of the of the team uh, of the places that have a lot of T Twenty cricket, I've got my memory is that uh, they're around middle of the road as far as runs per over and lower than most when it comes to averages. So there's more wickets in Australia than other places. Um, obviously, we're just coming off UAE, which is one of the lowest. Um, it'd be close to a run and over quicker than there. So you'd be looking at a pass score on average over the last three years in Australia of about 160. Whereas perhaps in England, which is usually the highest scoring, um, probably 170. Um, UAE's closer to 140. Um, so on the highest side, but middle of the road when it look, when you look at the pack. Uh, but there are more wickets. I'm not specifically sure why that is. Um, uh, but yeah, if you want a high scoring T20 um, tournament, uh, uh, you know the best place to host it would be England um, uh, on the blast pitches with the ropes in. <laughs> Um, because that usually gets the highest numbers. Um, I'm not sure what that numbers are there at the moment, but it's like, wait a minute, I think I have it actually. Let's see if we can do it live, kiddies. Oh no, New Zealand's got past them. New Zealand is at, what's that, 8.6 runs and over. So yeah, about 170 and England uh, just behind that. Uh, it's around 8.4, 8.5. Um, and Australia is at 8.1 so yeah um they're not it's not massively off the pace but it's certainly not the the highest um scoring uh, venue and, and we've also we're throwing geelong into that um i know that's just for the first few games um but we don't have a lot of data on, on top level games at geelong um at all so i don't even know what direction that would that would go in uh, there wouldn't be much of it out there James says, everyone loves a fun-themed 11. I called this team Impossible Brothers. So he's basically picked uh, two players with the same names uh, that aren't related. So Graham Smith and Steve Smith, Barry Richards, Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd, uh, David Lloyd's 12th man. I was like, I don't see another Lloyd here. Hamish Marshall, Malcolm Marshall, Adam Gilchrist, Roy Gilchrist, Imran Khan, Zahir Khan. Um, yeah, we used to do stuff like this all the time. Um I remember the, the stupidest one we ever did. And I can't remember when it was, but it will date it by the fact of the player I'm going to mention. But I remember me and my friends trying to come up with who's the, we, we tried to come up with an 11 of cricketers who would definitely get the first drink in a shout, um, but then might skip the second drink in a shout. And I only remember that stupid 11. It was one of my friends who came up with it, I think. Might have been me. It sounds like me, actually. Um, but I do remember it because someone nominated James Hopes. And I was like, there's no way James Hopes is missing a shout. So that dates the conversation. Uh, but I do like your uh, ridiculous uh, 11 there. Uh, thank you to everyone on Patreon. That's uh, all the Patreon questions done there. Um, 
So if anyone has a speaker request, you can put your hand up in the room as usual. Um, uh, uh, just big thanks to Bodyline T-shirts. Uh, this is the Banksy, um, the Banksy uh, cricket shirt, I think. God, that's actually hurting my neck looking down at it. Um, uh, yeah, so they've got some really good T-shirts. This one's not too bad at all, a bit of a random one. Um, although I don't know if I would wear it out in public just because I wouldn't want to be seen as the sort of person who would wear a Banksy T-shirt in public. But then it has a cricket bat on it. So I don't know how I feel about this particular one. But Bodyline T-shirts have some great shirts. Um, uh, remember, uh, raise your hand if you have any questions in the room um, uh, as well. But thank you for everyone who's doing that already. Um, uh, just a quick announcement. Most of you will already know. We've now got three podcasts a week coming out on the Red Inca feed. So Tuesdays, we have our Barrett Sundarayson. It's um, uh, Sundarayson, sorry, is uh, joining me on um, uh, uh, Uncovered, our new podcast, where me and him just talk about global cricket. Thursdays, we've moved um, Red Inca to Thursdays with my interviews with everyone else, or my chats with everyone else. And Saturdays is when this podcast, Wagon Wheel, comes out. Um, and if that's not enough, listening to my voice... I certainly think it is, but hey, uh, you can also listen to Double Century. Uh, that's now weekly. It goes out on the Double Century feed, not on this feed. That goes out on Fridays. Uh, but let me see who we've got in the room asking questions. Will, you there, Will? Yeah, hello. Hey, mate, what's your question? Just about like shining the ball in England and visiting teams, like how much do they think about it and should they think about it more? Because often England have like a dedicated guy for it. And there's like loads of players with massive red marks and they get more swing, it seems like it. But like, just do other teams think about it? Should they think about it more? I think every cricket team in the world has a dedicated China now. I think one reason you're you're thinking of the red marks more is because the Duke's ball actually makes more of a mark on your trousers. <laughs> um, I don't know how many different cricket leagues you've ever played in or how many balls you've ever played with, but different balls are completely different. Um uh, I remember in Australia, I can't remember the name of the brand, but it wasn't Kookaburra or Platypus, but there was another brand that some people sometimes used and you would just get incredible uh, marks on your trousers. <laughs> I remember in, like, in junior cricket, everyone being so excited um, uh, to get their hands on one of those balls um, to be able to mark up their trousers and make themselves look like, uh, you know, uh, Merv Hughes or whoever it was at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, so most teams have a dedicated shiner of the ball and that is a person who doesn't have sweaty hands um and that's obviously to do with reverse swing um and then the england is the only team i'm aware of who went to the lengths of getting the kit manufacturer to try and come up with new things to shine the ball with so they had that patch on one of their shirts i think they had a patch on their uh, trousers joe root has the longer um sleeve that's all on purpose, um, those things that they've all tried. Obviously, other teams have tried other things, like, uh, you know, having the zips on the pocket is how you scratch up the ball. Um, you know, uh, shout out to Faf de Plessy and, and Vernon Philander, I think, on that one. Um, but that's that was well known. Uh, there was a time in, in county cricket where a lot of teams had zips on their pockets, which are actually quite handy when you play cricket. You can keep your chewing gum in there um, or your, your sunglass um, case cleaner. Um but yeah, so other teams certainly have all those sorts of things. Um, but it is, I think it's more noticeable. It, this is what I've, I've worked out with this. If the person who is shining the ball is a famous cricketer, you usually know who it is much quicker because the camera's on them already. So Joe Root is a perfect example of this. Um, I'm trying to think. 
uh, Alistair Cook, Faf Plessy with two others off the top of my head, where sometimes, like people like me and Barra, like we're the sort of people who know who a lot of the sh- bullshiners are in cricket teams. It's actually hard to tell off TV a lot of the times just because you don't see it. The ball just suddenly gets passed to the bowler. Whereas if it's a famous player, you see it a bit more. But yeah, I, I think... Um, I think it actually doesn't come through England specifically because I think in the old days, I have to talk to some old cricketers on this wheel, actually. It's an interesting question. Um, uh, in in the old days, um, you you had um, – you had uh, – you didn't have reverse swing, so it didn't become as specialty, I would have thought, and you, we, they weren't thinking about keeping the ball dry. And then when the Pakistani players, they start getting specialists – in preparing the ball for reverse, right? That's the point at which cricket seems to get that as a job. Um, and, you know, we you hear stories in international cricketers of, you know, teams picking between two players based on uh, the fact that one is better at shining the ball than the other, which seems ridiculous. But if you've got one guy who can get the ball to reverse swing and he's averaging 32 with the bat and the other guy can get, can't get the ball to reverse swing and he's averaging 35 with the bat, um, you can see why they make those decisions. Um, but great, great question. But yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you get paid any extra for that. Um, if you do do, if you, if you do it, but thanks for your question, mate. If anyone else, uh, has a question, they can put their hand up. And Mole says, sandpaper was pretty good to shine the ball with as well. Yeah. I mean, people have been using illegal methods for a long time to shine the ball. Um, I think in sandpaper, sandpaper is a perfect example of, um, uh, you've got, Bancroft, who wasn't a specialist in that position, he was a wicketkeeper and short leg fielder a lot of his career. He would not have been a specialist in that. And so if you don't have someone who's good with their fingernails, because as good as sandpaper is, most players just use their fingernails. It's still tampering with the ball. Um, uh, You know, as I've said before, the ball almost never reverse swings without a form of cheating attached to it. It's maybe 20% of the time. It's so rare that it happens. There are certain pitches and grounds that help with it, but more often than not, you have to do that. And uh, if you want proof of that, when a team's trying to get the ball to reverse swing, suddenly all those big, nasty fast bowlers and those really fit fielders can't throw the ball in from the boundary on the full. And it always seems to land just on the rough part of the square. It's amazing. Um, But yeah, so so yeah, you know, sandpaper. But that comes from, again, um, I'm not saying other teams haven't, I mean, the, the story that I heard is that it came from another team is where they found that particular method from. But there's certainly been um, uh, there's certainly been a lot of players who are specialists in it, and Cam, Cam Bancroft was not seen as a specialist in it. Um, probably why he got caught. Who else we got here? Harry Hara, you there, mate? Hey, hi, Jero. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. What's your question? Uh, what I wanted to ask basically was we have third like cricket for different types of people, like men and women, kids. I you know I even, I even know about people, uh, cricket for uh, physically disabled people. So have you ever heard a structure for trans people? Cricket, is there something trans cricket or something like that? As far as I'm aware, there isn't. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't. <laughs> um, disability cricket, for instance, is really interesting. In disability, we have blind, deaf, physical, mental disability we have wheelchair as well so there's five formats of that and it wasn't till recently that i even found out that not all teams had um so i think it was i'll probably get this wrong but like every 
but almost everyone had blind cricket, I think. Uh, mo mo most of the major nations had uh, some form of a blind cricket team. A lot of them didn't have deaf cricket teams. And then Australia had the mentally challenged team and England had a physically challenged team or something like that. And so they didn't even have teams that matched up correctly. And so that's just within disability cricket. So trans cricket is, I think in Australia, is the most progressive when it comes to who can play um, in, in their cricket teams when it comes to trans rights. I think that's right. I've never heard of a league of trans cricketers. I have heard of teams and I've, had, I've heard of net sessions more, more than anything where a bunch of trans people turn up. Um, to to play cricket amongst themselves. Uh, when I worked with, when I helped coach women's cricket back when I was really young, you know, filled in as the assistant coach occasionally, um, it was quite regular in women's teams to have one or two trans players. Um, but I never heard of a league or an organization, but it's not to say that it doesn't exist. Um, because as I said, I didn't know of the five levels of disability cricket even that long ago. Um, so there is a lot of other random cricket out there that that hasn't floated through um but yes at, as far as i'm aware and until someone corrects me in the um in, in comments um or you know emails me i don't believe there is any top level multi-team trans league that i am aware of um and i, I don't know if that's the case in other sports because i don't follow them close enough my guess is in the future that might be something that we see a lot more of um but as it currently stands, it doesn't seem to be something that is huge within cricket. Great question, though. I tell you what, I wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> no worries. Cheers, mate. Bosco, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Okay, so I, I wanted to have a question about this legend cricket league. You know, so there are a lot of these popping up right now, and you, you also posted that Twitter the thing. So the thing is that this is also seems like, like to me as a like unregulated leagues where anti-corruption uh, would play a part in that way, but it's legally susceptible. So how do you see the future of this league going? What is this for the players? Because obviously, there's a large shot of, of fame, but uh, in terms of regulation, and will it become a thing in the future for uh, for future like retired players? Yeah, I mean, it's not a large shot of fame because no one's watching them. <laughs> it's, you know, for a lower level player, I, I don't know what the legends is paying, but for a lower lev level player, they were paying around twenty thousand US dollars uh, for the road safety. I, uh, a couple of my friends were uh, were offered that much money. Um, obviously, it's a lot more for some of those top guys. But if you're those leagues go for what two or three weeks, um, if you can get leave from your work, or you don't have a job, or you're you're a freelancer and you have availability, that's that's a lot of money for most people in cricket once they've retired. Um, uh, also, there, a lot of people have used them for contacts and stuff as well, you know, um, uh, business stuff, meeting people within the game. But yeah, the anti-corruption stuff, I don't know what the anti-corruption stuff is. Um, disclaimer, the Legends League actually wanted me to go out there um, uh, and podcast for them and, and chat to their people and everything, um, but I didn't end up going with them. Um, so I know a little bit more about that one than I do the road safety from, from that perspective. Um, but I don't know anything about what's uh, any of the anti-corruption or anything else like that. I would think that it could cause problems for people when they want to become coaches or selectors or scouts or anything within cricket, because I mean, I wouldn't bet on a legends league game with all, you know, um, 
I'm sure that Mitchell Johnson and Yusuf Patan actually don't like each other, and that's why that happened the other day. But there's still a part of me that thinks it might have been staged. Um, uh, you know, so uh, it would make sense if it was staged. I'm not saying it was, but it would be easy to fix. I remember, I won't name the player, but there's a great story about a player who was literally eating the world's biggest hamburger and drinking beers and having a chat to a bunch of people and then said, oh, I've got to go, I've got to play. And literally 40 minutes later, they looked up and he was bowling in one of those leagues. So he was at the hotel, quickly got an Uber down to the ground, went out, bowled one, one or two overs maybe, and then that's all he did um, and, left the, and left, left the ground. And so they're not taking him very seriously. Although uh, I can tell you, Mitchell Johnson was taking it seriously. Um, he was preparing so that, you know, there are different levels. Uh, is 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 uh, one way of explaining all that. But yeah, th there's no doubt that I would think that they're a bit of a wild west. And if you did want a coaching job, it might be a bit of a tricky one if you're involved in a league that then gets in a bunch of scandals and you know, uh, you're know you in any way implicated in that, even if you weren't directly involved. But I don't know uh, is, is, is the best answer. But yeah, it's um, there's a part of me that thinks if you're betting on Legend League's cricket, you should be defrauded. <laughs> you know? a bit like betting on wrestling but but also i like the idea of it there are you know there are a lot of players who missed out on their big paydays and you know we've seen with golf and tennis and um what are that they have that they have a league in the in the basketball as well which is like a half court league um so we have seen other sports work out how to do this and it's nice for those players to be able to profit off their fame even if it's a little bit after they retire um when a lot of them can't right and, and a lot of these players are very good players they just you know, they didn't quite cash in the way that they should have. So I certainly think from that perspective, um, it's quite a handy thing. Um, but from from the overall perspective, obviously, there's it, any of these unregulated or semi-regulated leagues that pop up are a problem. It doesn't matter if it's a legend league or anything else. And even a lot of the ones that do have um, uh, anti-corruption me me measures, there's no point having anti-corruption measures if the entire league is corrupted at a certain point right um so it really does go uh, far beyond just making sure that there's a person in the hotel lobby checking to see if anyone undesirable happens and if you ever want to work in anti-corruption in cricket that's what a the majority of your job is is literally sitting in the team hotels lobby and uh checking the faces to see if they match up with anyone who shouldn't be there there you go there's an insight uh, thanks mate uh, Anmal, do you just want to try one more time? Because I think you actually did come through if you're still in the room, but you came through at the same time as... Let's see if we can do that. Here he is. What was your question, mate? Yeah, hi. So I just want to ask, is, are these debates or controversial debates like Mankard or these kind of are good for the sports? Like, just it helps to promote? So, <laughs> so both should encourage these kind of debates, like just do something about those debates? Well... Forget Mancap for a minute. We'll come back to that in a second. The um, Do you remember when Marlon Samuels threw a cricket bat at Shane Warne? Yeah. Right? That was a huge moment for the Big Bash, right? So much so that James Sutherland, when he was talking about it, was basically laughing because he knew how it made the league seem more real than it was. I've just spent 10 minutes talking to Busker about the Legends League, right? I've only seen 40 seconds of it, <laughs> right? So, yeah. At a certain point, they do. They obviously, you know, there is a there is a tipping point, right? With you know, with NFL with concussions, with cricket with match fixing, 
uh, with cycling, with doping, right, where it doesn't help. But there are sort of low-level stuff that really does help. And if you look, I think I mentioned this last week on this podcast, but I might, I might be misremembering it a little bit. But, but if you look at, if you look at the, the, the run out that you're talking about um, uh, the, in, in the women's game, that was news for like a week. It's still news. Jimmy Anderson just said something in his podcast. It's still news. People are still talking about it. That's the best publicity that women's cricket has ever had for a bilateral game in a very long time, right? Now, it's negative space publicity at a certain point, but I can't see how it hurts the game realistically. So, yeah, I think on some levels those are good. I think obviously it can go too far and, you know, I, I, you're probably not old enough to have watched basketball in, in the 90s when everyone was or 80s when everyone was punching each other in the head. Um, um, there was a certain point where they had to get rid of that. Aussie Rules Football had a similar thing where everyone was hitting everyone and it was like, we actually need to clean this game up because sponsors don't like all that sort of stuff. So if, con if controversy is your only selling point or your major selling point, I think that's a huge problem within the game. However, you know, if your sport is occasionally getting into controversy and it's going around the world, it means your sport's probably doing something right to begin with because people have noticed it and secondly it keeps you in the papers for a couple more days right you know let's be i say the papers papers don't mean anything it keeps you on social media for a couple more days um so yeah but great question mate thank you very much in fact i really enjoyed can i ask one more thing if it's a yes or no one yes <laughs> okay so i will ask in the next one i was asking about that monkey gate scandal how, how was the reaction in australia at that time like was it that big or it was, was massive it just in india there's no way I can answer that correctly. So next time, come in and ask me that question. I've got ages. I built my career on that, that, that incident. And that's not a lie. That's literally how I went from someone who no one knew anyone about to someone knowing a lot about. So I've got many things to talk about. Thank you to everyone for asking questions. Uh, really fun show again today. Remember, podcasts, lots of podcasts, four days a week now. Big thanks to Bodyline T-shirts, uh, Manscaped as always keeping it uh, 100 downstairs and everyone else who supports us, especially the Patreons, buy me a coffee, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's allowed us to grow everything so far and make more podcasts. And thank you very much. If you come on to the Spotify live as well, see you next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapiya producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs> <laughs>